We certainly would, like as was mentioned a few moments ago, make an invitation and certainly an appreciative one at that to all who've been able to come together this evening for not only our regular membership, but our visitors alike who've come our way and we're thankful for your attendance and your presence. We certainly invite each and every one to be present at all of our services, not only those on Sunday, but also our midweek Bible study that is at 7 o'clock on, on Wednesday evening. As you know, for some few weeks now, we've been involved in a study of the Revelation on Sunday evening. In fact, we have arrived tonight to the sixth lesson in that series, already having looked at the first five chapters of that book. We might, in fact, make note most carefully of some of the thoughts of the most recent lesson because they will factor in significantly into the lesson of tonight. And in that previous lesson, in which we looked at chapters 4 and 5, we were reminded of the greatness and the marvelous character of not only God the Father, but also Christ Jesus the Lamb. In fact, chapter 4 was an emphasis upon the greatness of God, a recognition of all the worthiness that is deserving of Him. And in chapter 5, the character of that Lamb, slain in fact, but one that is indeed alive forevermore. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5, verse 12. However, all that that has done has now prepared us to look more intently into the character of chapter number 6. We might remember that one other careful note in chapter 5 was, in the right hand of God was this book, sealed seven times, written on the front and back side. And initially, no one was recognized as being worthy to take that book and open the seals. But then... Thankfully, joyously, powerfully, one recognized that the Lamb was worthy. And in fact, the Lamb took that book from the right hand of God and that began that greatness of praise to none other than Jesus Christ. In this chapter, we begin to notice what happens when the Lord begins to loose those seals and to reveal the contents of that book. As we come then to chapter number 6, might we might note that perhaps it would be worthy to comment. Many commentators, as they approach the book of Revelation, are at least generally speaking united with respect to most of chapters 1 to 5. However, beginning in chapter 6, there's a rather widely divergent set of viewpoints and interpretations that relate from, to this chapter and those that follow, especially until we get to chapter 20. That does not, however, in any sense remove the fact that you and I are able to deduce and to conclude many of the aspects of truth to be found in these chapters. And the same will be true of, of this chapter 6 this evening. In fact, a few notes that I've listed at the bottom of the screen that we should keep in mind as we begin. Notice with me that despite the fact that there are various interpretations we must remember that many of those interpretations follow from men whose viewpoint with regard to other books in the Bible is not correct. But since you and I are biblically astute in that we been, have been trained to rightly divide the word of truth, we would be better in a position to approach this chapter perhaps than many of those commentators. And thus we ought not feel as though we can approach it in, in an inferior way. But not only that, it's still the case many other Bible passages can provide a great deal of fruitful light even on these texts before us tonight. And finally, let us not forget that the book of Revelation is figurative. 
apocalyptic, symbolic in nature, and hence when we encounter a specific symbol, it isn't wise to press the symbol too far, for we can in fact draw from it things that really are not what the Lord intended. With that said, let us then begin in verse number 1 of this chapter and notice what happens when the first seal is opened. Would you read with me verses 1 and 2? And after we do that, we'll make some general comments about the nature of the first four of these seals as they're opened. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And at that point, the next verse begins by making note of the opening of the second seal. But I would ask that you comment with me that notice a horse appears. In fact, that will be true of all of the first four of these seals as they are loosed. In fact, John himself will see these various horsemen as they appear. The first one, as we noted, is riding a white horse. The second one will be a red horse. The third will be a black horse. The fourth will be a pale horse. As we read about these horsemen, our mind perhaps immediately races to another text in the Scriptures where four horses of various colors are noted. In fact, it's found in the sixth chapter of Zechariah. On that occasion, as I list for your consideration, it's not that that scene is identically parallel to this one, but there are clearly some things that are similar. One of the differences is that in that text in Zechariah, the horsemen, as they appear, the horses, they appear in different colored order. As you notice with me in that particular text, the red one appears first, and then it's the black one, and then the white one, and then a speckled one. But that text had as its idea and goal the emphasis upon the nature of the overruling power and providence of God that all that takes place does so with His permissive providence and will. And that fact will be rather powerfully relevant to this text as well. So that's one lesson that's of great interest for us. But notice that's not the only point that might be made. As God carries out His providential will in this earth, isn't it true that in many instances you and I, given the limited, the fact that we are not all powerful and that we do not know the future, we have a difficult time ascertaining the far-reaching futuristic characteristics of His will. That does not mean, though, that God does not orchestrate and work His plan in the character of human nature. The things that happen among nations happen with His permissive knowledge and will. The things that happen in my life and yours do so with His permissive knowledge and will. That will be powerful and also useful as we look at these first four seals as they are loosened. Perhaps one final comment. This factors in so beautifully to what we saw in the previous chapter. When that lamb took the scroll from the right hand of God... We remember that that statement was a very powerful thought that in fact take Jesus out of the nature of the history of man and it becomes meaningless. He provides meaning to every aspect of human history. We ought not forget that fact. And hence, we begin now to notice this first seal. What does it mean? Well, may I ask you to note with me more carefully some of the things contained in it. 
First of all, the loosing of this seal as we read a moment ago in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. We notice in verse 1, First of all, as this seal was loosened, John heard, as it were, the noise or voice of thunder, immediately indicating the presence of power and authority. That authority and power directly relates to how verse number 1 ends. One of those living creatures extended an invitation to John, Come! Now, it's interesting that in the original Greek, that word and see, as it appears in the King James, is not present. The invitation is literally come. There was something that John needed to see. We might remember in the previous two chapters that this great throne room scene in heaven, John had begun that by seeing this door as it was opened in heaven. And now, now this living creature invites John to come. There's more that needs to be observed, more that needs to be appreciated. And hence, verse number 2, And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. A white horse, immediately symbolic of triumphant victory. The character that we realize that in times of warfare, especially in the ancient days, the one that was victorious would ride the white horse as a symbol of that victory. And immediately we are presented a scene that has to do with warfare or conflict. But there is a victor. One was riding the white horse. And furthermore, as an emphasis on the victory, verse 2 closes by saying, A crown was given unto him. This one riding the white horse was experiencing victory in this conflict. And as the verse ends, he went forth, conquering and to conquer. Immediately we might ask, more carefully and more directly, what's the greater significance? It would seem that this, as well as will be true of the next three, has to do with a dual representation of its meaning. First and foremost, we understand that nations are constantly, it seems, involved in conflict. There's always war amongst men. One nation has a desire to overtake and conquer and overpower another. And it would seem from this text that that shall be true until our Lord returns again. But might we know there seems to be a deeper spiritual meaning here too. For later in the book of Revelation, we will encounter a white horse again. In Revelation 19, verse 11, on that occasion... We see a white horse, and here, who is riding it? When we arrive at that text in a few weeks from now, we will see there is no question who the rider is there. He is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is called the one who had vanquished all opponents, and without question, Jesus Christ is the rider of the white horse in Revelation 19. Could this be an initial hint, and perhaps a strong one at that, that as the Lord opens these seals, He also is the one riding on the white horse in the first seal as it's open, indicative of the fact that again He will ultimately conquer all that oppose Him, and ultimately all that is evil and all that is ungodly will be finally vanquished forevermore from the greatness and power of His presence. That would seem to be the meaning. For when we arrive at the fifth seal in just a moment, one more time an image like that one will appear. But at this point, for the first two verses, that is all the comments that you and I at this point might be able to make. But might I ask you to consider two pictures. 
We noted last week how that a picture can sometimes be a useful thing. This is a picture that we had looked at last week as well, showing, if you will, the scroll. But notice the one in the background is a lion, and the foreground is a lamb. And the one at the far left is, of course, an image or an artist's rendition of Jesus. That's not to say now that that is the exact way that he looked. That's just an artist's attempt to describe and to draw our Lord. But now what about these horsemen? Quite often these first four seals as they are loosed are described as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In this particular scene, note with me the far left one, the white horse. The one riding on that white horse at the far left, representative of this opening seal as we have just looked at it briefly, appreciating the victorious and triumphant nature of his vision and his conquering character. It may well be that initially the thought contained in it had to do with national warfare and conflict. But as we've just noted from Revelation 19, it would seem that a gigantic greater message has to do with the conquering nature of the gospel message and ultimately its triumphant victory over all its opponents. As we return and look at this picture in a moment, you can also already see that these four horsemen are presented together. That may be a bit of a new thing to us. It is interesting that in this chapter it is not the case that we should view these four horsemen as appearing distinct from each other. Verse 8, as we'll see in a moment, will hint that they actually appear together. These, Especially the next three horsemen will ride together. But let's look at the second of these seals as it's loosed. The loosing of the second seal. Let us read verses 3 and 4 together of Revelation 6. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And at that point, that's all the comments with respect to the second seal. Notice a few remarks that you and I may be able to make. We notice that again an invitation is given from one of those living creatures. We had seen back in the previous chapter there were four of these living creatures. One of them had made the invitation to John there in verses 1 and 2. Now a second one extends an invitation and yet again in the Greek it is come. There is no verb and see. But what does he invite John to see on this occasion? He invites him to see the following, and he notes a red horse. Verse number 4, There went out another horse that was red. Immediately as we contemplate the significance of a red horse, to our mind would come the nature of the color of blood. Bloodshed, that which often accompanies warfare and conflict when nations enter into warfare and military fighting one against another, one of the factors present is none other than, of course, the shedding of blood as men's lives are taken. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And they that should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. The verse seems to describe a type of conflict, doesn't it? Peace taken from the earth, a red horse significant of and symbolic of the color of blood. And what's more, they should kill one another and even a sword is mentioned. 
all of that leads us to appreciate that it's describing a time of more direct conflict. What does it mean? Well, we've noted the white horse initially symbolized this conquering nation, perhaps a warfare situation where there was victory. Here we notice that along with that will always be those that lose and those that are defeated in the shedding of blood. Perhaps in a spiritual way in a moment, we'll see maybe another meaning that will be true, but we'll do well to look at the next two seals before we readdress that. Having looked at these, might I remind you of the picture yet again. The second horseman, that horse again in the color of red. As that horseman rides, we can imagine the character and most of the commentators that I recognized agreed on the nature of bloodshed. But let us come to the third seal. This third seal. Verses 5 and 6, let us notice the color of the horseman here, the color of the horse in this case, and its significance. And when opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Excuse me. On this occasion, as John was given the capability to see, in this case, a black horse, and this black horse, again, representative of maybe certainly that which is different than blood and that which is different than victory, it would seem that the clearness of this is seen most amazingly in what he saw next. Let us readdress that. He had a pair of balances in his hand. What was the benefit and usefulness of the balance in the ancient day? A balance was utilized to measure a given amount of a certain quantity of a thing. And in verse 6, it was used to measure a quantity of food. Immediately we notice something is special about the price. A measure of wheat for a penny. And what's more, three measures of barley for a penny. What does that mean? Perhaps to you and me that seems a bit unusual, but some statistics will be greatly beneficial to us. A measure in that day and time was recognized as the amount of food to sustain one person for one day. A penny was the amount of money to pay for that given amount. So what are we seeing? We are seeing with the riding of a black horse the following thing. This person, by virtue of his working, was able by one day's work to obtain only his food for that day. Think about how difficult the situation would be. That would mean no money left for anything else. All that one had had to go for merely his sustenance, indicative of a time of scarcity, famine, and want. It shows elevated prices for the character of things. Doesn't that also go along with warfare? As foods and other staple necessary items are found in scarce supply, it shows that this too is another description of a time of great conflict and the aftermath of it. Isn't that interesting? As the Roman Empire went about her business of conquering other lands, these kinds of things exactly is what happened. There would be bloodshed as Rome mutilated and murdered those whom they conquered. There would come time of famine when difficult times arose by virtue of the victory. 
But as we consider all of these, it is showing us the scarcity and the want that is present in these physical characteristics when individuals do not pursue the things of God. To say that maybe differently, after we've looked at the fourth seal, I think that'll be a bit clearer. But at this point, would you consider with me, again, that picture showing this third one. Notice that if you can see that, he's carrying again in his hand balance. And that horse is black, indicative of famine, scarcity, and want. A time of great need when the necessities are no longer available. That's the black horse and the one riding upon it. But in addition to those, what about the fourth seal? At the bottom of that screen, let us read verses 7 and 8, descriptive of the removing of the fourth seal. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth, fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed, followed with him. And power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now it's that text that notes that not only did this pale horse ride, but the others before him were riding together. That's how we know that that picture we had seen was in fact a correct one. We shouldn't view these horsemen as individually riding to the exclusion of the others. These four are riding together. As this takes place, note with me the fourth one. This time again, the invitation from one of the living creatures, come. The verb again in the Greek, see, is not present. Come, John. And what did John see? Not a white or a red or a black horse, but a pale one. And note the significance of the rider. Death. What else comes with military conflict? And it's inevitable. There's death. There is the loss of life. But not only that, notice who followed the pale horse. Hades. If you're, if you're of one who has disposition to make notes in your Bible, that might be an appropriate time to make a note. For that word hell that appears in the King James is not the original Greek word. It rather is the word Hades, that place of disembodied spirits. And isn't it true that following death, the spirit does go to reside in that place known as Hades? Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. That again is what we see on this occasion. And what's more, isn't it amazing that in verse number 8, power was given to this one. It's not that he took it without it being given to him. It was given to him. And what's more, the power extended not completely. If Satan ultimately had his way, he would destroy the entirety of all following Christ. Only a fourth part is here given. And that's a symbolic way of stating the limited, restricted nature of the power that the enemy of God has. A beautiful way of stating it at that, isn't it? We shouldn't view that as a literal one-fourth. It rather is a statement, symbolic in that way, of the restricted nature of the power of the opponents to God and what the power that they have. As we've looked at that one, might we return and notice again the fourth of those creatures? The fourth horse and the horseman at the right. Note, pale in color, the rider is death, 
And behind it, though I admit it's not clear perhaps from the distance that you have to look at it, behind it is some image that reminds us of Hades. This is the picture of the four horsemen that we have at this point in the apocalypse, the loosing of the four seals. We have been given an interesting conclusion at the very outset by virtue of the first one. Might we make a comment or two about the first four seals before we look at seals five and six? As we look at these first four, we appreciate that they have described first victory, the white horse, followed by bloodshed, the red one, then followed by famine and scarcity, the black one, and also that which goes along with warfare, that of death and the pale one, namely the character of Hades following along and death riding the pale horse. But may we ask, given that it would seem that that white horse reappearing in Revelation 19 and there Christ riding it indicates to us that this is a general description of the lot of all, spiritually speaking, who oppose Christ, who refuse to submit to his character and his leadership as the victorious one riding the white horse. All are spiritually bereft of that which is spiritually of greatly in need. We understand that it's Christ who said, I am the bread of life, John 6.35. When you and I spiritually refuse to submit to him, we will be exactly in the case of a spiritual black horse. We'll be spiritually in famine. Didn't Amos speak of that kind of famine in Amos 8 verse 11? When there it's not a famine of bread and water, but of the word of the living God. Or what about the red horse? Those who refuse to follow after the Master, who refuse to submit and ultimately follow Him, notice that they, if they refuse to repent, will be found spiritually dead, just like a red horse, representative of the nature of the bloodshed that they're refusing to submit to. Finally, the pale horse, its rider being death. One more time, we see what spiritual death means when we are without God and without Christ, Ephesians 2 verse 12. The point is, it would seem that though these direct statements refer to a physical thing in conflict among nations, it would seem to be that there is a much deeper spiritual meaning that would reach not only to the day of Rome, but all throughout until the end of time, descriptive of the bad circumstance of all who refuse to follow the white horse, the victorious one, Jesus Christ our Lord. To amplify that thought, the fifth seal will in fact drive the point home, it would seem. As we prepare to look at the fifth seal, let us read verses 9, 10, and 11, for these three verses describe for us the opening and the loosing of the fifth seal. And just as an initial thought, for many, and I would tend to concur, this seal is a key idea in the remainder of the book. And hence, we will do well to place a fair amount of consideration upon it. Let us know what happens in the loosing of the fifth seal. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The scene shifts dramatically, doesn't it? 
by way of a picture. In those previous ones, we had seen four horsemen of the apocalypse, various colors of the horses, and we had seen the riders and their significations. Now, notice that there is no living creature that invites John to come this time. He simply says in verse 9, I saw. What did John see? He saw beneath the altar. This altar now not on earth. For John, the door was opened in heaven. John saw the souls of those who'd been martyred for the cause of Christ. Those who'd been killed because they were Christians. Those who had lost their life because they'd been true and faithful to the testimony of God. Let us notice again verse 9. These were slain. Why? For the word of God and for the testimony which they held. We see yet again a reference to the time of affliction and persecution that surrounded the book of Revelation. Those to whom John wrote this book were dying daily for the cause of Jesus. And yet here as the fifth seal was opened, John said, In heaven I saw beneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. To those who thus were suffering so, wouldn't that have been an encouraging thought? That even if I lose my life, look where I'll be. Look at the reward that shall be mine to enjoy. Souls beneath the altar in heaven. Might we in fact return and make some more comments about that? There are a few thoughts that are worthy of our consideration in regard to the opening of this seal. First, let us recall the significance of the altar. We shouldn't think that there is a physical altar in heaven, for heaven is a spiritual place, a place where spiritual things, our immortal spirits, reside. When John saw that altar, that should bring to our mind the significance of the altar in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, as well as many other chapters in the Old Testament, what took place at the altar? That's where a sacrifice for the purpose of establishing right relationships was made. As that blood of the animal was slain, it was quite often sprinkled around the base of the altar, Leviticus chapter 4. Later, when Solomon constructed the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6 through 8, one more time that great altar was present. And one more time, Israel made sacrifices around it. Solomon on one occasion offered 22,000 animals on one, on one time as sacrifice for the character of Israel. Might we know? This altar is a place where you'd expect something to be on top of it, not underneath it. And yet, John saw the souls underneath it. What does that mean? That means they appeared to be defeated. They appeared to be overwhelmed and overcome. And that leads me to again say, that's the significance. Later, these same souls that are currently viewed underneath it will be seen reigning on top of it. You'll have to hold on with me till chapter 20 until we see that. But that'll be a greatly significant thing. Even if you and I are called on to lose our life for the cause of Christ, we shouldn't view that as a loss. That's an ultimate gain. In fact, it's an eternal, glorious victory in which we shall enjoy association with God in Christ Jesus forevermore. May we again recall the words to the church in Smyrna, Be thou faithful until death. The book of Revelation is encouraging to you and me as it was to them to always be faithful and true to the cause of the great Master. For just as He rides the white horse and shall lead us to victory, these souls that appeared to be defeated 
shall one day before we close the book be seen to be victorious and triumphant and reigning with him. But maybe we could make another comment or two. What else does this indicate by virtue of its usage of the word souls in verse 9? To those in our world who would say that there is no life after death, this text as well as many others would say such is not true. These had died on earth. But John said, I saw them. Their souls were every much as in existence as they ever were. And you and I should ever remember that even though we may place a loved one in the ground, the body thereof, James had reminded us in James 2.26 that the spirit does not die, but rather the body without the spirit is dead. It's the spirit that in fact departs that body and goes to dwell elsewhere. John saw those spirits beneath the altar, apparently defeated, but ultimately, in fact, they would be the ones that would reign. But let us observe verse 10. What did these spirits or souls say? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? These were in essence asking God, how long shall it be before the cause for which we died will be vindicated? that thy word and thy cause will ultimately triumph all that oppose? That's a fair question, isn't it? Notice the answer in verse 11. White robes were given to them, again already hinting to the fact that they would be victorious. But notice what God said. You should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. God said there's going to be more who will suffer the same thing you did. There's going to be more who will lose their life for the cause of Christ, for the cause of the testimony of truth. Others will suffer that same fate. So you rest for a little while. But isn't it interesting? He did not say it would never occur. And yet another hint to later in the book, we will note the vindication of that cause. In fact, we'll see it rather strongly painted when we arrive at the sixth seal in just a couple of minutes. As we reflect on the fifth seal, may we notice the significance thereof. The first four had hinted at things that were more physical in character, it would seem. The the notion of what occurs when warfare. But we noted there seemed to be a deeper spiritual significance. The fifth seal hints at that too, doesn't it? The scene here is not on earth. It's these that appeared in heaven and they appeared defeated but were not. What about then the notion of those first four? Ought not we appreciate the greater character of that lesson we had hinted at briefly? That with regard to victory in Christ riding the white horse, all of those who oppose God, be it individuals or be it nations, will find themselves bereft of all spiritual necessities, thus the black horse. They will find themselves spiritually dead as per the pale horse, And not only that, they'll find themselves in cases without the character of the blood of Christ, the red horse. All of those pointing us to the greater spiritual thoughts behind the opening of these seals. Now the sixth seal. As we look at seal number six, let us read the remainder of the chapter, verses 12 through 17. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. 
And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Having passed through seal number five, we now arrive at the sixth seal. Perhaps at this point it would be reasonable to note the character of the greatness of what we've just read. Beginning back at verse number 12, we are aware of the fact that John appreciates a great earthquake. Not only that, verse number 12, the sun had become black, the moon had become as blood, the stars fell, the mountains and the islands were moved. What immediately comes to our mind? Time and again through the Scriptures, we are in a moment of anxiety when we remember when we've read things like this before. We shouldn't view this as thus fundamentally different from all of them. I've listed a number of passages for your consideration. In Ezekiel 38, in Joel chapter 2, in Isaiah 13, as well as Isaiah 34, and finally even in Matthew 24, Writings like this have appeared many times, and in every instance, what was the item of discussion? What was the context? On every occasion, it was the judgment of God against nations who had opposed His people and opposed His will. Let's say that again. In Isaiah, it was the Assyrian Empire who had opposed God's people and who, in fact, would ultimately be judged and conquered because of their opposition to God. Isaiah chapters 13 and 34. In Joel chapter 2, there it was the nation of ultimately Babylon who had opposed and they too would be judged. In Matthew 24, there it was the, no, na, the nature of the Roman Empire that would be crushed and overcome and such occurred in A.D. 70. This is a judgment scene portrayed to us in Revelation 6 as the sixth seal is open. An occasion of judgment is described. Which judgment is it? Let us see if we can figure that out. The stars of heaven fell, verse 13, unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. That text in Isaiah 34 uses that same analogy. John borrows that from the scene of ages past, uses it to describe the power of this judgment scene. Heaven departed as a scroll, verse 14. Perhaps that's our first gigantic clue. Where else have we read about that in the Scriptures? Psalm 102, the last three verses of that chapter had made mention of something like it, but the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 1 stated it almost verbatim. And that had to do with the final day when the end of time comes. Heaven will be rolled up as a scroll and cast aside as a garment. Our Savior will have returned to close the affairs of time and the judgment will follow. That strongly indicates this as a reference to that final great day of judgment when everybody will stand before God to be judged. And isn't that the statement of verse 15? The kings of the earth will be there. 
the great men and the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man. It makes no distinction. Every single individual will be present for the judgment. Thus, as the sixth seal is opened, it races forward until the end of time and shows us that as these have described all that takes place in between, this will be the final answer to the plea of those in the fifth seal. How long, O Lord? God didn't say the exact number of years or days or months, but He said in the sixth seal it's coming. There will be a time of vindication. All of those who've opposed me will stand in judgment and they will give account for the fact of their disposition. Verse 17, The great day of His wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? One of the greatest questions to be seen in the Bible in all, it would seem to me, is that question. The great day of His wrath has come on that day of judgment. Who will be left standing on that day? On the day of judgment when the dust is settled, when all the rubble is cleared, who will be left standing? Not the ungodly. Not those who have opposed the gospel. Not those who have opposed Christ. Not those who have refused to repent. Not those who have lived their life in open rebellion to the God of heaven. The only ones who will stand, as we will see later, will be those same souls who were underneath the altar in, in the fifth seal. But they were faithful to the Lord. They will be found reigning. They will stand. Chapter 20, when we arrive at that chapter, will conclude this by giving us a picture of the judgment scene. The books were opened. Those who had not lived pleasingly were cast into the lake of fire. Those, though, who were pronounced faithful, they were allowed entrance into the heavenly city. That cubical place described in Revelation 21 that was as beautiful as one can possibly imagine. These comments, excuse me, that thus I've made in regard to this sixth seal, perhaps they challenge us to remember how often the Bible has reminded us that all of us will appear at judgment. Not a single person will be exempt. All nations will be there, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five thirty-two. Paul stated in Romans fourteen twelve that everyone will be there. There's not a possibility of exemption, and John sees the same thing. Perhaps another picture would be helpful. That is another artist's rendition of the scenes of this sixth seal. You can see the stars falling. You can see the sun black. You can see the moon as blood. You can see the great whirlwind as the earth beneath it, beneath it is fractured and moved out of its place. We understand the earth will be destroyed and burned up on the occasion of the second coming, Second Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. And this sixth seal, perhaps with some other comments, then leads us to say this. This scene, though it would have been terribly beneficial to remind those persecuted saints of the fact that even the Roman emperors would be judged, it reminds us that all will be judged. Though you and I may live some 20 centuries after the fact of when John wrote it, it is still as vivid and still as true as it ever was. The opening of the sixth seal, the great day of judgment, when God will vindicate His cause ultimately before all of those who have opposed Him. With the opening of the sixth seal, we arrive at the conclusion to our lesson tonight, the ending of chapter 6. And perhaps a fair way to end it would be to remember how we began it, the victorious ride of Jesus Christ on the white horse and the way it ends. 
the fearful lot of all of those who are not able to thankfully answer the question of verse 17. The great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Will you be able to stand? Is your life at this point so prepared that you, if your life should end tonight, or if the Lord should return tonight, you will be amongst the number left standing on that day? If you can't answer that yes, you need to make things right tonight. The opening of the sixth seal teaches us forevermore the nature that God will judge the world. All of those faithful will be eternally blessed. All of those unfaithful will be eternally regretful that they did not obey. 